Isaiah 49, Servant of the Lord. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called to me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, who it, in whom I will display my splendor. What I have said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He said, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that I have that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servants of the rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a confident for the people, to restore the land, and to, re to resign its desolate inheritance, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn on my mountain into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. This is the Let's pray, shall we? Living God, thank you for these ancient words from the prophet Isaiah, words spoken so long ago, but words that address even us today. And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do just that, God, that you would make this ancient prophecy take on new, fresh life for us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So during the season of Lent, we are engaging with the prophecy of Isaiah, and we're looking at four peculiar, unique songs within Isaiah 
that are helping us focus in on the person of Jesus Christ, on the mission of Jesus Christ. We're wondering, why did Jesus come into the world to do what he did? Who is Jesus? What sort of savior is he? And we're looking at these four chapters, these what are called the four servant songs of Isaiah. And the New Testament, again and again, leads us to do this because it identifies Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of those prophecies. It identifies Jesus clearly as the one who is that servant. And so last week we looked at Isaiah 42, this week Isaiah 49, we're going to continue on. But there's one image that, that is traced throughout all of these songs, and that is the image of a servant. And it is articulating to us clearly, this is the unique particular way that God takes as he engages this world, a servant. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word servants. Connotations usually include something like, you know, someone of a lower position, someone of a reduced economic status, maybe a diminished status, maybe a loss of freedom in some sense. No one lines up to be a servant. No one studies for years to be a servant. And yet in these prophetic passages from Isaiah, the Bible says this is exactly how God comes to us. This is how God works in the world as a servant. Now, it's not difficult for us to understand that idea of a servant, but it's very hard. As I talk with people, it's very hard for us to assimilate that reality of who God is and how he works into our understanding of God, into our prayers, into how we think of salvation. Servant, of course, is one who does things for another person. He or she is one who's probably on the lowest economic rung of the ladder. When we think of God, however, we think of someone quite exalted, highest. We think of power and might and glory. And without trading any of those qualities of God, Isaiah tells us the Savior we need comes in the form of a servant. And there's no doubt that this servant is God. This person is divinely chosen, known from the womb already. And the opening command of this uh, chapter, Isaiah 49, listen to me, are the words. Those words, no one says those in the prophecy of Isaiah. Not Isaiah himself, no one but God. There's a complete endorsement of God's authority on this servant saying this is the way God works in this world. Maybe not the Savior we'd want or we'd expect, but this is the Savior we need. And look at the glory, I mean the absolute wonder of the salvation that this servant brings. This chapter sketches out in broad scope the salvation that the servant brings. First of all, he's going to bring Jacob and gather Israel to himself. Jacob and Israel, of course, are those images, pictures for Israel, the nation of Israel itself, the God's people who were in exile now, who were in Babylon, they are going to be brought back. They're going to find their way back home. All that was lost is going to be restored. There's going to be a, a spiritual restoration of God and his people. God comes to save his people. That's part of it. Now pause there for a minute and think about what that means for us. It means that the servant Jesus comes to save Christians too which can be a startling thing for us sometimes. 
Do we need saving? You bet we do. Right here among us, we need to be saved from our hopelessness, from our faithlessness, from our self-righteousness, from our judgmentalism, from our idolatry. We need to be spiritually restored to God. And this is part of what the servant Jesus does for us, but so much more. I love what God says. It is too small a thing. It is too small a thing for you to restore the tribes of Jacob. God is saying, I have greater plans than the return of the Jews from exile. That, that's a wonderful part. It's going to be part of it. But I am going to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. God says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In verse 12, you see that vividly described when it says that through the servant, God is going to bring his people together, gather people from all over, from the east, which is where the Jews were. They were in Babylon, so if they're going to go back to Jerusalem, they're coming from the east. But not just them, from the north, from the west, from the south, God is saying, I am going to bring salvation to all people. I'm going to draw believers from every nation. I'm going to create an international, multi-ethnic people of God. What a beautiful vision that is. This vision that is so needed in our world, which is racially divided, which is culturally tribalized. Oh, church, this is our mission too, to display before a watching world how in Jesus Christ people from every nation, every tribe, every race learn how to love one another, how to honor one another, how to show deference and respect to one another. Isn't this the Savior we need? And this salvation, it's, it's so big. It not only includes all people, it includes all things. It encompasses creation. In verse 8, God says through his servant that he will restore the land and to reassign the desolate inheritances, all those places where the curse has come, wherever it is found, God's salvation intends to turn that around. I mean, the very land, creation itself, is going to come alive. It's going to be restored and renewed. I mean, think of how beautiful it big that hope is, that a creation that groans under so much environmental damage and disaster, groaning from pollution and abuse, Jesus comes to restore that creation, restoring forests and farm fields, revitalizing polluted oceans and ecosystems, regenerating watersheds and species even. And then you get down to verse 13 where, where it, it, there's this beautiful image of, of that salvation where the mountains are rejoicing. I mean, it is all of creation just celebrating the goodness of this. This is the vision of the new heavens and the new earth in which everything, I mean, all suffering, all decay, all disease, even death, it is put aside and God renews everything. Is your idea of salvation that big? Or have you settled for too light a thing? This, nothing less, is the beauty and wonder, the salvation that God brings through the servant Jesus Christ. But then something peculiar happens in this passage. So God tells this beautiful message of promise, of hope. And then you get Israel's response. 
even despite this grand revelation, despite these fabulous promises, they say, but you've forsaken us, God. You've forgotten us. Now remember, the Hebrew people, they were in exile. Their temple was destroyed, trashed. Their city, Jerusalem, was in ruins. And they see that and they think, God, you've forsaken us. That temple, it was meant to assure us of your love. It's gone. Your love is gone, God. You don't love us. And that, that painful, skeptical question, I think, is representative of a condition of the human heart that we need to look at. Because notice, what it doesn't say here is it doesn't say, we don't believe your promises anymore, God. It doesn't say, well, I don't believe in God anymore. These things you've said are never going to happen. It's not a denial of it. There's no indication that they don't believe it anymore. It just hasn't touched their heart. hasn't shaped their lives here and now. Which raises a, a fascinating reality that it is possible for the human heart to live in the presence of truth, to believe it, and yet for it not to affect your life for not to affect the way you live at all. I mean, this is true for many of us. How we confess with our mouth, yes, I believe in God. I believe in a God of love, a God of forgiveness. I believe even the biblical God of love. But it, it, it doesn't shape the way we live our daily lives. It doesn't affect how we feel about ourselves, how we understand others. It doesn't shape the way we interact with the world around us. Why is that? How does that happen? How do we become those practical atheists, I guess? Well, one thing that can undo the best of us is when life as we hoped for doesn't work out and loss unsettles us. One author, Craig Barnes, he says this. He says, the experience of life, we just keep losing things. Wives, husbands, friends. We lose health. We lose dreams. We lose security of the past. Nothing stays the way it was, he writes. And like those Jewish exiles, when all the signs of life like we hoped for seem gone and lost, it's, it's a real easy step to think, God, you've forsaken me. You've forgotten me. Where are you, God? And I imagine most of us have been somewhere in that territory at some point in our lives where we felt abandoned by life, where we've lost our dreams. A mid-career businesswoman finds she can't stand the work that she has studied so hard to do, worked so hard to get, and yet realizes she can't afford to quit either because she needs that job to pay for the lifestyle she enjoys. For every marriage I perform, I know there's a couple of marriages that are struggling with cracks and crumbles and they settled for something less, or they're on the road to some sadder end. A parent can sit beside a child they love, but a child they just don't understand any longer, and it feels like anything they say or do just makes the silence chillier. Or what about the struggle that so many of us have, simply to keep pace with the perennial, the constant pace of change. It feels like there's no place that doesn't change and change fast. Maybe we're struggling with that here in church, and it's hard to keep up, and it's hard to keep our balance, 
and then it's hard to keep trusting God. Every one of us has these painful losses, these deserted dreams of how we hoped life would turn out, and it can feel, it can feel like we've been abandoned. The stories of how God has acted in the past, they seem so remote. The promises of the Bible, they can feel distant from our lives. And at times it feels God is so very far away, forsaken. But what if, what if this is in fact grace coming to us in the disguise of a loss? What if all those deserted dreams we've once held dear were actually idols? Things that we placed our, our best hopes in, but in fact left us high and dry. I wonder if it could be that all of our losses, those seasons of darkness, those times when God felt so far away, could just be moments readying us for the Savior we need, not the Savior we want. What if, how about this, what if Jesus was really serious when he said that only those who lose their life will find it? You've got to know Christianity is fundamentally the experience in losing the life of our dreams in order to receive the life that Jesus died on the cross to give us. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't give us all the dreams of life we hope for. God doesn't pr promise to, to recover our well-ordered, nicely planned lives because actually that might be the very thing from which we most need to be saved. What if, in fact, he offers us something better? If he offers us the salvation we need? And here's the paradox. Here's what feels like the mystery of salvation, that only those who lose their lives find it. Only those who... who who let go of their faux saviors, their false dreams of how life should work out, are ready to receive the life that truly is life. Do you know that salvation that we need so desperately? It is God himself. It is the presence, the reality of God. And the good news of Isaiah, the salvation of God's servant we see in Isaiah, is not only grand and world-changing, it is intimate and close and personal and every loss every sense of abandonment is actually an invitation to receive the life of god i love how god deals with this despair of his people here how does he deal with this despondency of israel this sense of forsakenness he doesn't say to them well, suck it up, people. Come on. I have promised you everything. What more do I got to tell you here? No. In fact, you know, verses 15 and 16, they, they represent God actually sort of pressing the pause button and, and turning aside and engaging with those fears and anxieties of his people, which is a beautiful invitation to God. Never think that your deepest sorrows or your anxieties or your questions and your doubts you can't bring those to God. Of course you can. And God tenderly responds and he says, can a mother, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And though she might forget, 
I will never forget, says the Lord. God is getting his people to meditate, just to to get beyond their, their sense of forsakenness and to meditate on the truth of who he is. And he gives this beautiful, vivid image of unconditional love. And he, he's saying, this is who I am. The God of the universe is like a mother to a child. Think of that bond between a nursing mother and an infant. It is so strong, so, I mean, it's as strong as any human bond. There's a biological bond. There's an emotional bond. Watch a nursing mother sometime. And you'll see a radiance in the face of a mother that perhaps she isn't even aware of. And God is saying, what you see in a nursing mother, that is, that is just a dim hint of my delight in you. I mean, how unconditional, how sacrificial a mother's love is for her child. And now God says, I want you to compare her to me because that's me. You see that mother's love, it's nothing compared to my love for you. Do you see her physical love, giving her all for her child? Do you see how she is moved in her very being towards her child? Do you know everything in my glory, in my power, in my faithfulness, my nature drives me towards you in love? I am a God of unconditional love. I'm a God of faithfulness. I will never forsake you, never abandon you. And if Israel was tempted to say, yeah, that's just more words, God. God does one more thing. And he says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And at first blush, that looks like just another lovely metaphor that God is speaking. Because sometimes in those ancient times, servants would have the names of their master tattooed on them. And you'd think, wow, here is the master having the name of the servant tattooed on his palm, that would mean that master is utterly devoted to that servant. And of course, that is what we have here. It is a picture of God's love for us, but it's more striking that because it doesn't say tattooed, it says engraved. And the Hebrew word for that is a fairly specific word, meaning a hammer and a chisel or a spike has been at work here. Think of that. When God has scars on his hands which demonstrate his utter devotion and love and when God's chosen servant Jesus comes among us his love becomes engraved on his hands through a cross and those scarred hands are more than words they're more than an argument they're a testimony of his love remember when that happened remember when Thomas Thomas who was feeling despair and despondency Doubting Thomas, we call him, when he was just struggling to believe because he had lost the Lord of his dreams. And Christ appears to him and he says, look at the palms of my hands. See my love for you. Look at what is engraved in the palm of my hands. This is not an argument. This is a demonstration of life, of his life laid out. Do you feel anywhere that God's forgotten you, forsaken you? Because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken for you. Jesus took the forsakenness you've sensed, maybe the sense that you deserve, so that no matter what you do, God will never forsake you. He loves you unconditionally as a mother loves her nursing infant. The deep fear I think we sense behind every loss is that somewhere in there, God has abandoned us. God, who should have saved us, has forgotten us. 
that can be a transforming moment, actually. That could be a saving moment. Because even when it feels like God has left us, we might discover that it's actually not God who has left us, but some faulty image of God that has abandoned us. It was not God who has forsaken us, but rather we are trusting in something that would provide no salvation for us, which then frees us to discover the truth, the wonder of the Savior we most desperately need. The salvation we need is to receive and recognize Jesus as our only help. Not our only help to receive the life we've always wanted, but our only true help. It is impossible for us to follow Jesus and not be led away from something. Conversion is always this painful process of letting go of false hopes, of former dreams, letting go of how we think life should go so that we can be held by the Savior that we most desperately need. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these beautiful songs of Isaiah, for this really surprising, astonishing demonstration of your saving grace. What a Savior, what a salvation you offer us. God, if there is anywhere in us today where we might hear that and yet echo the words of Israel and say, but God, you forgot me. Where are you? We pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, just imprint these words in a deeper way upon our hearts. Would you help us to, to meditate, to think, to savor, to grasp how deeply you love us, how great and wide is your love and mercy. God, would you release the power of the gospel in our lives? In some ways, it, it has been released, even as we listened and reflected upon your word right now, even as we put ourselves under it. But God, would you increase our capacity to receive it, to savor it, to enjoy it? And so we ask, Lord, that you would drive down deep into our hearts what you have said to us, that in Jesus Christ you love us, that you'll never forget us, that you will never forsake us, because Jesus himself was forsaken. And as we prepare to come to this table now, we pray that you would again imprint that truth deeply on our hearts. Your unconditional love. Help us to know. Help us to be shaped by that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.